Uh, my name is Aaron Logan. Um, I am the children's ministry director here at Grace Church of the Valley, and I am uh, blessed and honored this morning to be able to open up Scripture uh, with you. I, I didn't realize that Scott was going to be here, so I, I saw you and I started crossing out all the heresy in my notes, so hopefully I got it all, and uh, we should be good. But um, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful morning to be here with you this first Sunday of, of 2022. Um, there's something really special about the new year, right? There's something really special about this kind of, this time of, of new beginnings, this new season. It's, it's bright, it's sunny outside. I know many of you are farmers, you love the rain. I'm not. I love when the rain stops, right? And, and it's just a, a beautiful time. This morning we're still we're still all keeping our New Year's resolutions, right? I noticed that, that many of you are looking trim. You've been exercising. You've been eating well. Um, we'll see how we're doing next week. Uh, but, but all of those things, and, and really it's, it's what we need right now. Because if you hadn't noticed, 2020 and 2021 were kind of crazy years, right? There was a lot going on, and not a lot of it was super encouraging a lot of the time. And, um, and so I think the best way for us to start off 2022 together is with a, a light and encouraging passage. So open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Um, I'm joking a little bit, but, but we will be in Revelation. And if you're like me, when you think of Revelation, what comes into your brain is you start to think of, of dragons and horsemen and plagues and, and all kinds of things like that. And that's certainly in the book of Revelation, but that's not the entire book of Revelation. Uh, there's actually a whole lot more going on. You see, Revelation is a letter. Like many of the, the books of the New Testament, Revelation is a letter, and it's written um, to churches in this area of Asia Minor. So these seven churches in Asia Minor, Revelation is a letter written to them. It's penned by the Apostle John, and he, he wrote the book of Revelation when he was in exile on this island of Patmos. So this is probably around uh, the mid-90s AD, and so it's the, the latest book written, unsurprisingly, in our, in our New Testament. And um, John, at the time that he writes it, we believe he's the only surviving apostle at this point, that all the other apostles have, have been killed, have been martyred, have given their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. And now John, this kind of elder statesman, this last surviving apostle, is in exile on this island of Patmos, basically sent away to go break rocks, right? And while he's there, he has this vision. Christ appears to him in a vision, this post-resurrection, post-ascension Jesus shows up to John and gives him this vision that is recorded in the book of Revelation. And yes, much of that vision is things to come, things in the future. Much of it is this kind of apocalyptic vision of the future, but that's not all of it. In uh, Revelation chapter 1, in verse 19, uh, Christ is telling John what to write down, and it kind of functions as, functions as an outline of the whole book of Revelation. He says this, Revelation 1, 19, says, write therefore the things that you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. So he starts with the things that you have seen. That's Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, it's the things that John had seen. What did he see? He saw Jesus. He had this incredible vision of Jesus in his glory and his power, in his glorified body. He talks about him as, as fire in his eyes, his face shining like the sun, a sword coming out of his mouth, his feet like burnished bronze. It's this beautiful, powerful picture of Christ. 
in his power and his glory. That's the first part of Revelation, chapter 1, the things that you have seen, the things that John has seen. The next section is the things that are, the things that are, and this is chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, what we have are seven many epistles, letters within the letter, and these seven many epistles are written to each of these seven churches that are going to receive this letter of the Revelation, okay? And, and in each of these epistles, it's kind of this, this self-contained little um, specific instruction, commendation, exhortation to each of these seven churches that are kind of on the postal route where this letter is going to circulate. And then finally, he says, the things that will take place after this. That's chapters four through the end. That is the things that are to come. That's the visions of the apocalypse at the end of time and also eventually of the new heaven and the new earth of the eternal state, okay? So that's kind of the, the layout of Revelation, the outline of Revelation. Christ sets it up for us right there in 119 as he's telling John what to write. So today we're gonna be in that section of the things that are. We're going to be looking at one of those letters within the letters, one of those epistles to the seven churches that are going to receive this letter of Revelation. All right? So we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, sorry, Ephesians, we'll be in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, going through verse 7. And and something that I love, just to draw to your attention up front, something that I love about these seven letters to the churches is there's this phrase that's repeated in each of them, and it says this, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in one sense, just like all of our, of our uh, New Testament canon, this letter is written to a very specific church at a very specific place in a very specific time. However, Christ is very clear to say that this is applicable to all of his people in all places at all times. He who has an ear, let him hear. So this is for, yes, the first century Ephesian church, but it's for us as well. So let's go ahead and read and see what it says. This is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll go back through it together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake that you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so that is this first letter, this first letter within a letter, epistle within an epistle. So the first question, who is this letter to? Let's look at the greeting there in chapter 1, in chapter 1, in verse 1. The greeting there in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars. All right, so who is it written to? It's written to the angel in the church in Ephesus. Now, 
little, little quick note on that word angel there. Normally when, we, when we're reading scripture, when we see angel, what do we think of? We think of angelic beings, spiritual beings. But really the word that's translated there as angel is simply a word that means messenger. It means messenger. And if we look at the context of this for a number of reasons, it's actually much more likely that this is not picturing an angelic mess, an, a um, spiritual angelic being who has some authority over Ephesus, but rather, this is simply the messenger of the church of Ephesus. Who is that? Well, that's the, the pastor. That's the leadership of Ephesus. So this is a letter that's being written to the primary communicator, the primary messenger in the church in Ephesus, to the pastor of Ephesus, to the leadership of Ephesus, and by extension then, to the church in Ephesus. So it's written to this, this messenger of Ephesus. And what do we know about Ephesus? Well, Hopefully we know a thing or two, right? Scott's been taking us through the book of Ephesians for um, just over a year now, and uh, hopefully we know a thing or two about what's going on in Ephesus. Um, just to jog your memory real quick, though, Ephesus is a, a large and wealthy city in Asia Minor. It is the cultural, the economic, and in many ways the religious center of the region. It's famous for housing one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this um, temple to Artemis, temple to Diana, it's the same, the same goddess, who is, among other things, a goddess of fertility. And so we know that Ephesus is filled with idolatry, with paganism. It's also filled with all kinds of sexual immorality in the service of that idolatry and paganism. That's what Ephesus is. It's a powerful, cultural, religious, and economic city. What do we know about the church in Ephesus? Well, we know, for one thing, that the church in Ephesus has an impressive pastoral pedigree. Uh, the, the church in Ephesus was planted by none other than the Apostle Paul himself. We know that it boasts leaders throughout its, its time at this point, um, such as Priscilla and Aquila, uh, the great teacher of the early church, Apollos. Uh, Timothy served there, and church tradition tells us that the Apostle John, who's actually penning this letter, served there for a time as well. So it's got an impressive pastoral staff over its history. Um, and we also know that Ephesus is not a church that has historically been, been content to just kind of hang out within its four walls. Because in the book of Acts chapter 19, what we see is that at the start of the Ephesian church, it caused such a wave in this large city that it caused riots that these silversmiths, these, these men who, who their whole profession was essentially making idols, were worried that if everyone starts worshiping the true God, then they're not going to buy my idols anymore. I'm going to be out of business. And so what do they do? They riot. So Ephesus is, is this impressive church that, that has a pretty impressive past. Um, that's who the letter is to. But then who is it from? Well, of course, we know this letter is from Christ. All of Revelation, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. It is the revelation um, that, of him and what's going to happen. So we know this is from Christ, but what's interesting about these letters is that each of them introduces Christ in a different way. And how is Christ introduced here in the letter to Ephesus? We'll look back there at verse 1. It says this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. How is Christ introduced? In verse 1, as him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
feel like oftentimes in Revelation, we're trying to figure out what, is, what exactly is this talking about? Are the locust Black Hawk helicopters like what's going on? This is not one of those moments because Christ is very clear about what this means. If we just back up literally a verse. If you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, he says this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, the messengers, the pastors, the leadership of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So how does Christ introduce himself in this letter to the church in Ephesus? He introduces himself as holding the messengers of the churches, the leadership of the churches in his right hand and walking among the lampstands, walking among the churches. It's this picture of his power, his authority over his church and his presence within his church. It's this picture of him ruling and reigning over his people, holding the authority of the church in his right hand but also walking amongst the seven golden lampstands, walking amongst the churches, showing his presence in the churches, that he's not far off, that he's not disengaged, but it shows a care for the churches and a knowledge, an intimate knowledge of the people in the churches and what's going on in the churches, right? And so it's from this position of both authority and intimacy, of both transcendence and imminence, it's this position of holding the seven stars and walking among the seven lampstands that Christ then addresses the Ephesian church from a place of authority and a place of intimate knowledge, love, and care. And he starts with a commendation. He starts by commending them on what they're doing right. It's a good communicator, right? He understands that he starts with the positive. And so what does he start with? If we look in verses 2 and 3, he commends them in a number of things. They kind of fall into three main categories. Three main categories of this commendation that he gives to the church in Ephesus. The first is he commends them for their unrelenting work ethic. For an unrelenting work ethic. Look in verse 2. I know your works and your toil. Jumping down to verse 3. It says that you have not grown weary. So the first thing that Christ commends the church in Ephesus for is for their unrelenting work ethic. For the fact that they tirelessly are doing the work of ministry. The church in Ephesus is full of people who show up early to get everything set up and the doors unlocked and stay late to fold all the chairs and put them away, right? That's what Ephesus does. They do the work and they do it tirelessly. They've heard the command from Galatians chapter 6 to not tire of doing good works. They have not tired. They are doing the work that is set before them. They have an unrelenting work ethic. The next thing that he commends them on is on their unwavering endurance. Their unwavering endurance. Look back to verse 2. He says, I know your toil and your patient endurance. If you move on to verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. So the church in Ephesus, yes, has an unrelenting work ethic. They're doing the work of the gospel, the work of the kingdom, the work of the church. They're doing it tirelessly. They're also 
unwavering in their endurance. They are standing up under fairly horrific persecution. They are bearing up for the name of Christ when things are hard. And things were hard. I mentioned earlier this was written probably in the mid-90s AD. This is a point that persecution has ramped up tremendously. When you read through the book of Acts and you see all all these times where uh, believers are being thrown in prison, they're being stoned, they're being beaten, they're being run out of town, that was just like the pre-show. The the real persecution hadn't even started yet. Because that happens when Nero comes into power around the the mid-60s. Christians are effectively framed for burning Rome and this kind of persecution ramps up to the nth degree. That's what the church in Ephesus has dealt with. That's what they have endured under. I know you and I, we feel like we're being persecuted if the guy at Panda Express tells us to put on a mask. I don't like putting it on either, but it's not worth comparing. It's not worth comparing to what's happening to the church at Ephesus. They are facing incredible, intense, severe persecution, and they are standing strong within it. That is an incredible commendation. Christ himself is saying, you have borne up under these persecutions. It's an incredible, incredible compliment. So they have this unrelenting work ethic. They have this unwavering endurance. And he also praises them for their uncompromising devotion to truth. An uncompromising devotion to truth. Look at verse 2, the end of it. It says, how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. Jumping down to verse 6, he brings this back up. He says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The church in Ephesus has an uncompromising devotion to truth. They care about getting it right. They care about their theology. They care about getting it right. They've tested false teachers. They've shown wisdom and discernment. They've shown an understanding of doctrine. And they've shown a passion for doctrine. He says that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? We don't know a ton about them. Um, They're mentioned also in in other letters here to the churches in Asia Minor. Um, And where they're mentioned in the letters to Pergamum and Thyatira, they're tied to these other kind of heresies of of Balaam and Jezebel. Uh, And then we also can look at some of the early church fathers, men who wrote about the Nicolaitans, probably a hundred years or so removed from the writing of Revelation. And from all of that, we can kind of piece together a a blurry picture, perhaps, of what the Nicolaitans actually believed. Um, But it seems most likely that they were teaching something like a cheap grace, Like this idea that since we are saved by grace, since it's not about our our deeds, now our deeds don't matter. And um, there there are are church fathers who who have pointed to the fact that the Nicolaitans uh, perhaps were condoning sexual immorality, idolatry, and adultery in the lives of believers. They were teaching this kind of cheap grace, specifically when it came to sexual ethic uh, in the church. But the church in Ephesus was not falling for it. No, they, they were 
standing strong against this wave of the Nicolaitans. And in fact, they weren't just saying, no, that's not right. They actively hated this wicked teaching. This might be a little bit of a tangent here, but I think it's, it's so important and applies so clearly to what's happening in our world and in the church today. See, we live in a time in the Christian church where there's this whole segment of the church that we might call progressive Christianity. And the biggest way that they deviate from orthodoxy is that they don't hold a sexual ethic that is biblical. And when you try to hold them to that, they say, hey, hey, you're being bigoted, you're being hateful, we might disagree on this, but let's just agree to disagree. No! The Ephesians didn't agree to disagree with the Nicolaitans. They hated their works. They hated the wicked things that they were teaching. And Jesus doesn't go, hey, look, the Nicolaitans are wrong. You, you, you guys are right. They're wrong, but like, be nice. You're all the same church. No, he says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, which Christ himself condemns as evil and wicked. That's who the Ephesian church is. They have this uncompromising devotion to truth. They care about getting it right to the point that they hate the deeds of those who are getting it wrong. So I don't know about you, but at this point, hearing this kind of, this makeup of the church in Ephesus, that they have this unrelenting work ethic, that they have this unwavering endurance, and that they have this uncompromising devotion to the truth, my question is, when's the next membership class, right? My question is, where do I sign up? I want to be a part of this church. This is the kind of church that I want to be a part of because they're doing all of these incredible things. But of course, Christ doesn't stop here with commendation. He moves on to rebuke. And the rebuke that he has is not light. The rebuke that he has is stinging. It is painful. It is powerful. He says this. You've done all these things, verse 4, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have this work ethic. You, you have this endurance. You have this devotion to truth. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. What does that mean? What love did they have that they no longer have? Not just that they lost, but that they abandoned, that they walked away from. What is that love that he's picturing here? Is it a love of each other? What, what, is, is it a case of when the Ephesian church first came together, they were like the Acts 2 church. They sold all that they had. They loved each other. No one had any need because they loved the body of Christ. Is it a love of lost people? Is it this idea that, that when the Ephesian church was first formed, it had this kind of evangelistic fervor to go and to tell lost people about who Christ is and what he's done? Well, I think the answer is yes. Yes to both of those things. Yes, they, they used to have this love for each other that, that just isn't there anymore in the same way. They used to have this, this love for lost people that, that doesn't show itself, this evangelistic fervor that isn't there in the same way that it used to be. Because ultimately, the love that they have abandoned here is very simply a love for God. They have abandoned a love for God. They've abandoned the love that they had at first, a passion, an affection for Christ and for his gospel. 
There's a passage in Jeremiah um, where the language of God echoes this very clearly. It's God, he's speaking to his people, he's speaking to Israel, to Jerusalem, and he says something that I think sheds some more light on what this love that they had at first is. So if you want to open to Jeremiah chapter 2, it says this in Jeremiah 2, 2. It says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. So here God is once again lamenting the love that his people had for him in the beginning. And what does he say? He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Your love as a bride, that is powerful imagery. You know, I know that I'm getting old because I'm reaching a point in my life where I kind of like going to weddings now. Um, it used to be, you know, when you're a kid and you go to weddings, you're like, this is so boring. Can we do the party thing now, right? Um, but I love weddings. I love going to weddings. And there's something really special about at a wedding when the bride walks in the back and everyone stands up and they turn and they look at the bride. The best thing to do is to turn the other way and look at the groom, to watch him watch the bride. I remember my own wedding um, we didn't do like the first look pictures or anything like that. So the first time I saw Anna in her wedding dress was when I was standing up there at the front of the church that I grew up in and the doors opened and she's standing there. And I'm, I'm at the front, I'm an 18-year-old kid, which was weird everywhere I lived until I moved to Kingsburg. Now you guys just wonder why we don't have more kids. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm standing up front and the doors open in the back of the church and there's my bride. And her hair's done, and she's beautiful, and she's got this, this beautiful white dress on, and her big blue eyes are looking up at me. And, and I remember all of this emotion welling up in me, seeing my bride, seeing this woman that I love, that I was going to spend my life with. And I'm fighting back tears up there, right? Because I'm so overcome with affection for this, this beautiful woman. That's the love that God's people had at first. It's the love of a bride. It's the love of a groom. It's that overwhelming affection, that overwhelming understanding of the beauty of who he is and what he's done. It's that first look at the wedding. That's what the church in Ephesus has lost. They've lost that affection for God. They've lost that understanding and appreciation of his beauty, of his glory. So what exactly is the rebuke here? Well, I don't think Christ is rebuking the Ephesian church because they haven't constantly sustained this mountaintop emotional experience. Many of you know before coming here, uh, to Grace Church of the Valley, I was up at Hume Lake, and I did camp up there for four years. And I love camp. I think it's a wonderful ministry. I wouldn't have given four years of my life to it if I didn't. 
But there's this double-edged sword to camp that we call the mountaintop high. The kids go up and they, they get up in the mountains amongst God's creation with their friends and deep in scripture and, and they get this like emotional, spiritual high. And then they come back down the mountain and slowly or quickly that, that emotional, spiritual high begins to wane. They've had their affections for Christ stirred for a week and they come back down and the stirring stops and the affection begins to wane. Part of that's natural. It's what happens. We're, we're not going to walk through life with this constant emotional high. So I don't think that's what Christ is rebuking the Ephesian church for. I think what he's rebuking them for here is that they have fundamentally disordered affections. They have fundamentally disordered affections. They are so far removed from that first love that at this point, they don't even realize what they're missing. They're so far removed from the mountaintop, they don't even know what it looks like up there anymore. The rebuke is that their actions and their affections have been so divorced from each other that the religion of the Ephesians has continued on in a way that is externally impressive but is internally bankrupt. In other words, Christ is saying something, something like you have this work ethic. You have this work ethic, but it's not motivated by my mercy. Your endurance is not powered by my beauty, and your devotion to the truth is not driven by my glory. Reminds me of a familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 13, one that you're legally required to read at a wedding that says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. The Ephesians had walked away from the love they had at the beginning. They were motivated by duty and not by affection, not by love. So, if you're like me, you hear a rebuke like this, you say, okay, so what do I do to make it better? Right? If Christ had come to the Ephesians, if he had said, all these things you're doing well, you've got this work ethic, you've got this endurance, you've got this passion for truth, but one thing I have against you, you're not reading your Bible enough. You'd be like, okay, great, I can do that. I can do that. I'll get a little bookmark with little checkboxes, and every day I'll read my Bible, I'll do what I need to do. Or if he said, you're doing all these things great, but one thing I have against you, you're not, you're not showing up to church. You missed twice last week, last month. Oh, okay, all right, I'll be there every single Sunday. I'll make, we'll make sure that we're home on Sunday morning and we get to church. But this is a little bit harder thing to deal with. Because this rebuke is not a rebuke of their discipline, it's a rebuke of their affections. So how do they fix that? How do we fix broken affections? How do we reclaim love that we have abandoned. Well, he gives them that answer in verse 5 in this exhortation. He says this, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. So three steps. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and do the works that you did at first. 
So the first step, remember. Remember, what are they to remember? They're to remember from where they've fallen. They're to remember what it felt like on the wedding day. They're to remember what it felt like when they first realized who Christ is and what he had done for them. They're to remember the incredible beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, his glory and his power, his mercy and his grace. My favorite line in Amazing Grace is that, which was grace that taught my heart to fear, grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? That's what the Ephesians are called to remember. They're called to remember the preciousness of God's grace the hour they first believed. It's the first step to fixing the problem with their affections. The first step for us in fixing the problem with our affections is to remember the gospel. The next step is to repent. To repent. Repent is a powerful word. This idea of turning away from something, turning away from sin, turning towards Christ. And normally, when we hear repent, it's something like repent of sexual immorality, repent of idolatry, repent of pride. What what exactly are they repenting from here? They're repenting from their apathy. They're repenting from their complacency. They're repenting from allowing the greatest news in all of history of who Jesus is and what he's done. They're repenting from allowing that to become routine, allowing that to become ordinary, allowing that to become unremarkable in their hearts and their lives. See, they've allowed the service of their holy God, of their reigning king, and of their loving father to become nothing more than simple duty. And if our service of God becomes nothing more than simple duty, then that is sin. If our service of God is motivated entirely by duty and not by an affection for him, then our apathy towards God, our complacency, our familiarity, it is evil, it is wicked, it is sin. We're called to repent. The Ephesians are called to repent. John Piper puts it like this. He says, if you come to God dutifully offering him the reward of your fellowship instead of thirsting after the reward of his fellowship, then you exalt yourself above God as his benefactor and belittle him as a needy beneficiary. And that is is evil. To abandon the love of God is not simply an omission or a mistake. It is sin. And so the Ephesians are called to remember and they're called to repentance. And finally they're called to return to do the deeds that they did at the beginning. To do the deeds that they did at the beginning. So what are those deeds? What are the deeds that they did at first? Well, maybe there are some things that the the church was doing in the beginning that they're no longer doing now. 
in loving each other and serving each other, maybe in outreach and evangelism. But Christ's rebuke of the church in Ephesians is not a rebuke of the things that they're doing. It's not a rebuke of their actions. It's not a rebuke of their discipline or lack of discipline. No, it's not a rebuke of any of those things. His rebuke of them is a rebuke of their affections. He's not rebuking their lack of discipline. He's rebuking their lack of affection, their lack of love. And so when he tells them, remember and repent and return, he's telling them to return to what they're doing only now. Do it in a way... Do it in a way that's not motivated simply out of duty, but a way that is motivated by an affection for God. A way that is motivated by a love of God. A renewed love of God. An understanding of God's renewing love for you. He's telling them to go and do the work of the kingdom. Tirelessly work for the kingdom. But don't do it because you feel like you have to. Do it because you are animated by an awe of his mercy. Do it because, like Isaiah, you've seen a glimpse of the glory of God. And your only possible response is to say, woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, I come from a people of unclean lips. But God has in turn said to you, your Guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. Now go and do my will. Do the work of the kingdom, not because it's simple duty, but because you realize who you are, who he is, and what he's done for you. And your awe of that animates you to do his work. Endure persecution. Bear up under persecution. Not because you're trying to repay God for what he's done, but because you are so filled with gratitude for what he's done for you and what he will do in the future that your joy is untouchable. Because as Paul says in Romans, you realize that the trials of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to you in Christ Jesus. And stand on truth. Stand on the uncompromising truth of the scripture. Not because you want to win an argument, but because you've been so struck by the glory of God that you cannot stand to see that glory robbed. Because like Moses, you've seen the revelation of God and it's driven you to your knees in worship And like David, zeal for his house, for his glory, and for his honor consumes you. Return to the work you're doing. Remember the love you once had. Repent of your complacency and return to the work you're doing. No longer motivated by simple duty, but now motivated by the love of God, by the beauty of Christ by the glory of the gospel. It's the exhortation that Christ gives to the church in Ephesus. And then he lays out the consequences. The consequences of obedience, the consequences of repentance, and the consequences of continuing on in their lovelessness. 
says this in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. If you continue in your lovelessness, if you continue in your lack of affection for me and for my gospel, if you continue in it, then you will no longer be representatives of the kingdom of light in this kingdom of darkness. This is the consequence that the Ephesian church faces if they don't change. That they will no longer stand as a beacon of light in a kingdom of darkness. They will no longer function as Christ's representatives on this earth. That's the consequence of a lack of repentance. But if they do, if they turn, he says this. Look in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to, the eat, to eat the, of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who has a victory in this battle against complacency, in this battle against apathy, in this battle against affectionlessness. To the one who overcomes and who has a victory in this battle against apathy, I will grant to eat of the tree of eternal life, of eternal life in paradise with the object of our affection. What is the reward to returning to the love that we had at first? It is eternal life in paradise with the object of our love, with our God, with our King, with our Savior. So, first Sunday of the new year, Many of you have New Year's resolutions. Some of you are on diets that will last through January. Some of you are working out more. And I'm willing to bet that many of you made a New Year's resolution in a spiritual sense. You said, this year, I'm going to be better about reading my Bible. This year, I'm going to read a chapter a day. I'm going to do the whole Bible in a year. Some of you are big shots, and you say, I'm going to do the Horner plan all year long. I'll read 10 chapters a day, 3,000 chapters, whatever. That's great. That's great. I am so glad you're doing that. I'll pray for you that you keep to that. You pray for me that I keep to mine. Maybe some of you are saying, my New Year's resolution this year is we're going to get to church more. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. And that's great. I'm glad that you're doing that. Because duty is not a bad thing. Discipline is not a bad thing. But it can't be the only thing. So here's my challenge to you this morning and this year. What if you had a resolution this year that looks something like this? Yes, I'm going to read my Bible. Yes, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be uh, with the assembly of the believers. But what if your New Year resolution looks something like this? Every morning when I wake up, I'm going to remember the gospel. I'm going to remember who Christ is and what he's done. Maybe that looks like reciting a verse. Maybe it looks like singing a hymn. 
I don't know. But what if your resolution was every morning when you wake up, you begin the day by remembering the gospel, not just regurgitating the gospel, not just rote saying the gospel, but actually thinking and reflecting on the gospel and remembering the beauty and the glory and the power of it. You start every morning by remembering the gospel, and then you repent. You pray to God. You say, Father, forgive me of my apathy. Forgive me of my complacency. Forgive me of the ways in which I have abandoned the love that I had for you. Forgive me of of allowing my affections to become cold. Fill me with a new love and a new fervor for you and for your word this morning. You woke up every morning, you remembered the gospel, you repented of your apathy. And then you went and you did the work of the kingdom. Not motivated by a simple, stale sense of duty, but motivated by an overwhelming love of the God who made you, who lived for you, who died for you, and who rose again for you. The object of your affection the love of your heart.